0: Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, award-winning author and journalist John A. Farrell. His book, Richard Nixon, The Life, was published by Doubleday in 2017. After chronicling the lives of former Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill and progressive defense attorney Clarence Darrow, John Farrell was approached by a Doubleday editor with a fascinating offer. The editor asked Farrell to write a one-volume biography of Richard M. Nixon, the only American president, to resign from the White House in disgrace. Farrell welcomed the editor's offer, but he also knew that he needed to spend about six or seven years documenting Nixon's life.
1: I was unsure whether I wanted to spend that much of my life with Richard Nixon. (laughs) Uh, I thought he'd just been done to death. Um, I had that feeling that there'd been lots of Nixon books, and it wasn't until I went out and did the research that I found that uh, there hadn't been a one-volume Uh, for a while, and that there had not been um, a really definitive Nixon volume since the 1990s. And this is, of course, what uh, Bill Thomas, the editor, had determined. Um, You know, there's a certain point, I think, maybe it's 10 or 20 years after a famous person dies that archivists start saying, ah, nobody cares about this guy anymore, let's just put it out there. And um, there was sort of a political struggle at the Nixon Library, and they... Um, became part of the National Archives system, and there was a great archivist named Tim Neftali, who was just pushing stuff out the door. So all of a sudden we had a very rich collection to look at. One of the first things I found was uh, that when Nixon was president, his alma mater, Whittier College in California, had gone out and talked to his relatives, to his friends, to his college classmates, and they had assembled over 300 oral histories. And then Watergate happened, and they said, oh, well, we don't want to issue these now. We're just going to put them on the shelf. And literally, they had stayed on the shelf. And I get this assignment. And that year, Whittier College decides, "Okay, well, what are we going to do with this? Let's just push it out there. And so all of a sudden, I had all these oral histories with like his grandmother and his uh, brothers. And it was just just a wonderful uh, set of timing. And then when it was published, all of a sudden, Watergate and, and Nixon were highly relevant again because of Trump's. Uh, troubles with uh, Russia, and so I—it I, was—it was good timing on both ends. Hmm.
0: In addition to the Whittier College documentation and, and interviews, was there any new materials that had either um, come uh, online from an archive or that the Presidential Library released?
1: Well, this is a combination of good luck and personality uh first i i I signed the contract i'm looking around about how to start and the nixon library announces that they're opening up a bunch of his love letters to his wife pat wow i mean what more could you ask for what single (laughs) more you know and then you look at them and they're so not richard nixon they're you know my dear uh, irish vagabond um, this lonely barrister is sitting in his office now and the and the the rain clouds have passed, and the sun is shining on the golden fields and he 's thinking of view and the great things that we can accomplish together and he 's getting all mushy and then and and then you see a glimpse of Pat who always had this. Uh, reputation as being sort of cold. And she wasn't. She was wonderfully sarcastic. And she would get one of these flowery letters from him and she would write back, okay, Dick, come over Wednesday and I'll burn you a hamburger. Uh, so those glimpses are what you know biographers um, live for. And they—they. They, it's a shame that political figures, political families, political guardians of the story um, don't realize that it's that humanity that is, is a way into this person and, and will make you forgive the flaws um, and let you admire the things that need to be ad- admired if you just you know, say, hey, it's a human being. And Robert Caro, the great biographer, tells this story about an editor he had at Newsday who was teaching him how to be an investigative reporter about 50 years ago. And the editor's lesson was turn every page. And I had heard Caro give a speech and tell this story and say, turn every page. So I'm that kind of person which doesn't mind sitting in a chair turning pages. And uh, so that's, that was the perspiration, inspiration part. Um, the other part was, was I was just sort of fortunate again in that uh, Richard Nixon had fought in court for 20 years to get his papers back. They had been seized by Congress because he left office in disgrace. Uh, So the the papers and the tapes were held by Congress. He went to court, and a huge chunk of the stuff that he identified as irrelevant to Watergate but politically sensitive, um, he took back. And then he died, and they sat in a basement somewhere, and the foundation got tired of paying storage fees. And so they sent him back to the National Archives. And the National Archives took their time going through to make sure there's no national security secrets. And then they very quietly opened them one day, I think maybe around 2008, something like that. And there were there were sort of two great mysteries about Nixon. One was Watergate, and the other was the accusation that uh, in the 1968 campaign, he had undermined Lyndon Johnson's attempts to get peace talks. And that allegation had been proven... That the undermining went on, but Nixon always claimed that he didn't know about it, and that last sort of link of the chain of tying Nixon to it had never been brought to light. So here I am going through laundry lists, um, surveys of how much toilet paper is left at Camp David. I'm not making this up. <laughs> this, you know, the food bill at the at the summer at the winter White House in Florida. Mm. How many sirloin steaks are we going to get? And there, all of a sudden, is this in. Uh, he had a chief of staff named Bob Haldeman. And Bob Haldeman kept notes on everything. And so I knew going in that I wanted to look and see if there was something about the bombing halt. And uh, I knew that Haldeman's notes were a good place to be. And then lo and behold, in this collection that had been in the basement for so many years and finally given back to the National Archives and then open to the public, and nobody had taken the time to go through every page, there was Nixon saying to Bob Haldeman, uh, keep Anna Chenault working on the South Vietnamese. And Anna Chenault was a campaign official who was his go-between with the South Vietnamese government. And she had been heard on an FBI wiretap telling them to hold off on the peace talks until there was a change of administration until Nixon won because they'd get a better deal. So now for the first time you had that connected with um, the Johnson Library tapes, which showed Johnson knew all about this and was furious. And now you finally had it tied directly to Richard Nixon. So it wasn't, a, wasn't like I had discovered Watergate, but it was a nice little piece of the historic puzzle to, to put there. Um, I always think that history is sort of like when you go to the beach with your family in the summertime my family always carries like a 1,200-piece jigsaw puzzle and dumps it on a <laughs> on a table in the living room. And if it's rainy or you're up early drinking coffee or you're up late having a beer and you wander by, you put a couple of pieces in. Mm-hmm. And I, that's the way I sort of feel that, that historians work. We find these little pieces. We find a corner. You know, we find the last piece of, you know, one little image in the jigsaw puzzle and we slip it into place and feel immensely gratified. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let me ask you cuz I love the way you start the book. Most cradle to grave biographies start at the cradle, yep. getting the person born and then takes it through their life. But you start when he's what in his early 30s, late 20s.
1: Yeah, when he start I start with his career, political career.
0: All right. So why there?
1: Um well, I don't like what you, what we sometimes call the begetting chapters. you know he beget so and so and you know that it's just the thing that intrigued me about Nixon was that although we see him as this dark individual as a caricature, um, I was always interested how did he become that way? And so uh, the most fascinating parts of his story to me were before anybody else knew about him. Um, how did Uh, somebody who grew up in a Quaker background become a guy who did the Christmas bombing of Hanoi in the Vietnam War? How did somebody who had been brought up and gone to a religious college and whose faith was supposedly very important to him as a young man uh, then become the uh, progenitor of Watergate? And so I went looking back uh, for a sense of who he was, and the thing that struck me was that he did it all on his own. I mean, this was a guy who had no connections, no money. Um, he had some grit. He had perseverance. He was a very smart guy and uh, basically won that first campaign uh, on on 1946, coming home from war as a young lieutenant commander in the Navy. Um, and he did it by himself. And so I said, I want to tell people who this guy was, not just the stuff that they you know about him. And this is a real great example because in the midst of all that, there's a couple of little tiny indications of the dark side of Richard Nixon. And so I get to unfold his character out entirely in the course of that campaign and show how in the crucible of the campaign, he gave way uh, to a couple of uh, nods to intrigue, um, some sleazy accusations, um, uh, red baiting uh, in the 1920s. 46 campaign and and so okay so here he is an otherwise laudatory figure doing it by himself he and pat against the world but in that campaign he, he cracks just a little bit starts talking about putting spies in the democratic candidate's camp and i thought i just thought that was a good place to start
0: yeah and that was pretty interesting because you see it's just a little hint of the fact that, oh, wait, he's doing this now, and this is his first real major campaign. What is he going to do later? Yes, exactly. (laughs) um, Wasn't he also a little bit lucky because he got a call to come back to California to run in his first race? Yeah, yeah. Um, It wasn't like he was looking to get into politics.
1: No, he had no idea what he was going to do when he got home from the war. And there was a, I think it was a 6 term Democratic incumbent uh, named Jerry Voorhis, who everybody thought had that seat locked up, and so part of the reason that they would give the Republican nomination in the first place to this young lieutenant commander is that nobody who who had the connections, who had a name, wanted to run a suicide mission against the Democrats, um, especially since this was the you know the New Deal era, Roosevelt had just won World War II, and this was a Voorhis was a Roosevelt uh, Democrat, but uh, Nixon, this is where sort of his ability to read the uh, the landscape came in. He had a sense that uh, the American people were looking for a change. After all these years of regimentation in the Depression and in the war, they wanted to relax a little bit. They wanted government and regimentation out the door, want to go back to being who we were in the the happy-go-lucky 1920s. And Nixon saw that. um, His greatest political gift, aside from his perseverance and his grit, was that he had a, a wonderful ability to read an audience. And I don't just mean stand at the podium and tell people what they want to hear but to read the public mood in the years where public polling was just getting underway um, he was a, a man of the soil he was as as he later famously declared he was a member of the great silent majority and he knew them they were his people and they saw him and said Richard Nixon is one of us and so he had this great ability to to uh, look out over the uh, over the fields and see the way that the wind was blowing through the uh, through the sheaves of wheat
0: and I, I love the way too you weave in um, the information about his family background and not just the heritage, his grandparents and all that, but also um, what his family was like and what he what he was like growing up as, say, a middle child.
1: Oh, he had a Dickensian uh, childhood. <laughs> he, you know, he had um, he had a father who was this uh, blowhard who managed to fail at growing lemons. In one of the world's most greatest citrus belts, right? I mean, and then uh, then decides. I uh, did make a great. His next step was was smart. He saw the coming of the automobile and opened up a gas station. And the gas station became a grocery store. And he worked his sons like like the devils to uh, to make that a, a successful uh, grocery store. But uh, two of them die. I mean, Richard's um, youngest brother Arthur, who's like the the golden baby of the family. Um, dies uh, within a couple of days of meningitis. And his older brother, um, he contracts tuberculosis and takes years to die, ruining the family's finances. And so smart dick gets invited to apply to Harvard and Yale and gets offered a scholarship, but he can't go because his family can't even put together the money to put him on a train to go to the East Coast and to pay for his boarding. So um uh, he comes out with this huge chip on his shoulder and the poor guy ends up running against Jack Kennedy in 1960 who was rich and handsome and uh, although had plenty of trauma in his own in his own family um, seemed to be blessed with everything that that Richard didn't have and Nixon just builds up this great grievance about uh, uh, the eastern establishment and the Georgetown set and the uh, the New York Times and the and the Washington Post and the Ivy Leaguers they're all against me.
0: In, in the process of going through all and turning every page, did you find anything um, that you hadn't known about, about how he approached problems and successes?
1: Yes. And um, I don't put a sign on it. and Maybe I should have. But throughout the book, I use his relationship with the civil rights movement as a telling indication of his values so that this young guy who does have this idealism when he comes out of Whittier uh, Quaker College and who fights to have his um, his uh, fraternity open to um, uh, black members, um, who was endorsed in his first campaign by um, the, the, the fellow who was in the UCLA backfield with Jackie Robinson, and then Nixon goes and he becomes vice president, and he's the leading voice for civil rights uh, within the White House in the Eisenhower years, he, this first Civil Rights Bill of 57 comes to the floor. He's presiding over the Senate. He makes rulings that infuriate the South. He, he takes a, a stronger, braver stand than Kennedy and um, Johnson. And then you come to his personal correspondence and the personal things he did. First vice president to ever go and break bread with a black family in the District of Columbia. Um, Whittier had, like, two black families, and one of them was the guy who um, uh, shined shoes at the barbershop. And that guy's daughter had gone on to Yale and graduated. And he had them in segregated Washington. He took them into the Senate dining room. And then he writes this letter back to his law partner and says, doesn't it just reinforce your faith in this country that the daughter of a, the shine guy in Whittier is now going to be, you know, get her— I think it was a postgraduate degree from Yale. And so that was, you know, that that was not for public consumption. That was him writing to his friend. That gives you a glimpse of his soul. And then things change. In 1960, Kennedy gets the black vote because Kennedy takes a a braver stand on on, on an arrest of Martin Luther King down south and Nixon says no comment. He becomes too tepid on that. Um, He gets very bitter, and then all of a sudden you see in 1968 the emergence of what's now called the Southern Strategy, where the Republicans begin to do this very successful dance with uh, Southerners on racial issues uh, like busing um, and integration, and eventually take over the entire South and make the South that base. Well, that was Richard Nixon's calculated decision to do that and to abandon his, his earlier ideals. And so what I, what I finally came down to was that uh, he was an opportunist. He did not have very strong convictions, either as a, as a moderate, a liberal, or a conservative. The one thing that he really, really believed in was he wanted to set up this structure of peace in the Cold War to prevent war. And that was pretty much sort of a nod, a genuflection to his Quaker mother, who had been a great admirer of Woodrow Wilson, um, and the League of Nations, and uh, so that, I think that was that one part of his personality where uh, there was still a surviving shard of idealism when he was president. I mean, this is a guy who, with a stroke of his pen, created the Environmental Protection Agency and signed into law uh, Social Security cost of living increases. I mean, you can look around our, you know, our lives, and you can see Nixon's invisible fingerprints everywhere. Title IX. Um, the volunteer army. I mean, lots of stuff came. And then twice in Nixon's two terms, he came forth with a health care platform for all Americans, which was virtually identical to what was eventually passed as Obamacare. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm sure you get asked this definitely now about the parallels between, say, Nixon and now President Trump.
1: Yeah. Um, I think Nixon and Trump, and I think Nixon was a a pioneer in this in the post-war Years. Nixon, Trump, Gingrich, uh, George Wallace, all were politicians that played to the dark side of human nature. Um, they work on our fears, and very often they play on uh, fears of the most superficial differences in human beings. And Nixon had a little bit of a proper schoolboy in him um, that sort of was his little voice, you know, angel on his shoulder whispering in his ear, Don't go too far, Dick, don't go too far. But never, I don't think, maybe since Andrew Johnson have we had a president who was so willing to play these awful dark fears that we have of each other. And when you have a politician like George Wallace or Donald Trump or Richard Nixon prey on on those fears and, and divisions, you know, it's really ugly.
0: And here's John Farrell reading from his book, Richard Nixon, The Life.
1: The final hours had more than their share of Shakespearean scenes. Nixon choking back sobs and rushing from the room after telling a group of his old friends from Congress, I hope you won't feel I've let you down. The leaders of the House and Senate leaving Nixon and hearing from the crowds outside the White House gates, the people singing God Bless America. Nixon asking Kissinger to join him on his knees in prayer in the Lincoln Bedroom. But no scene in a career of astonishing spectacle was as memorable as Nixon's farewell talk to the White House staff on Friday morning. The actor met the moment. It may well have been the most raw, acutely painful, and unforgettable speech in American political history. His daughter, Tricia, recorded the scene. Do not trip over wires. Stand on name marker. Reach for Mama's hand. Hold it. Applause, Daddy is speaking. People are letting tears roll down their cheek. Must not look. Must not think of it now. The real Nixon is being revealed, as only he can reveal himself. By speaking from the heart, people could finally know Daddy. It's not too late. He tried one more time to tell us who he was, how lonely, how alone. Nobody will ever write a book, probably, about my mother, he said. Well, I guess all of you would say this about your mother, My mother was a saint, and I think of her, two boys dying of tuberculosis, nursing four others in order that she could take care of my older brother for three years in Arizona, and seeing each one of them die, and when they died, it was like one of her own. Yes, she'll have no books written about her, but she was a saint. Then came proof of his astonishing resilience. We think that when someone dear to us dies, we think that when we lose an election, we think that when we suffer defeat that all has ended, he said. Not true. It's only a beginning. Always. The young must know it. The old must know it. It must always sustain us. Because the greatness comes and you're really tested when you take some knocks, some disappointments, when sadness comes. Because only if you've been in the deepest valley can you ever know how magnificent it is to be on the highest mountain. There was a faded doom about the man, Henry Kissinger thought. Many in the audience were weeping. And in the end from Richard Nixon came words as wise as ever spoken in the great old house, rich in self-knowledge, purchased at a price. Always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them, and then you destroy yourself. Dick and Pat made their way out to the south lawn, walked down a long red carpet, shook hands with a funereal vice president, and climbed the steps of the presidential helicopter. Army One. At the last, Nixon, turned and grimacing, gave one sweeping defensive wave as if to ward off unquenchable grief. And then he thrust his eyes, arms skyward, flashing the trademark V's for victory, turned, and entered the helicopter. Army One lifted from the lawn, rose above the muggy Capitol. The National Mall dimmed in a summer morning's haze. Below L'Enfant's grand boulevards and Brumidi's halls and corridors, pulsed with visionaries, parvenus and hustlers, with dreams and scheming, with avarice, ambition, rivalry, and purpose. The chopper soared over statues of heroes and monuments to great statesmen whose ranks, with such American audacity, the awkward grocer's boy had presumed to join, had come so near only to fall. It's so sad, Pat said to no one in particular. They spent the flight to California alone, each in his or her cabin on Air Force One. The president had a cocktail. At noon, when they were somewhere over Missouri, the resignation took effect.
0: That was author John A. Farrell reading from his book, Richard Nixon, The Life, published by Doubleday in 2017. John Farrell's reading and interview were recorded in Washington, D.C. in May 2019. You can read more about Bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music, and thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day.